This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That on Scotland but this time as a player I've been lucky enough to interview Craig Brown and yep. and he was talking to me about the 98 World Cup and the story he tells me about yourself was that you were desperately playing midfield but he obviously ended up playing you as a right wing back Well I actually listened to a little bit of it uh, if the truth be told uh, I, I like Brownie a lot uh, I'm not, I wouldn't say a bad word against him uh, to be honest with you, I've got no issues with him I thought it was, we had a really enjoyable time uh, but I think he embellished a couple of those little stories he told you. I think one of them was, you know, he came to me to play in midfield and I just told him, Burley, you'll be playing wing, but he never told me, he never did anything of the kind. I knew, I kind of knew I'd be playing wing, but uh, my frustration was that I had just come off a player of my uh, best ever season with Celtic, you know, 15 goals from the middle of the park in the year that we won the title. Uh, Scottish Football Writer of the Year. I won that award, uh, and I'm very proud from for the writers to 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 have voted me. Something that I'm still think highly of. Uh, and my frustration was that I knew I was in the best form of my life as a goal scoring midfielder. Now I knew deep down, Callum, that when we got to the World Cup, I would be playing uh, right wing back, but I did get a little frustrated. I'm not going to deny that. I did. I did go and see him at one point. I think it was when he named the team for the Norway game, which was the second game, and I was still playing wing back. And I think I did go and see him and Alec, uh, Alec Smith, uh, Alec Miller, and uh, you know he basically did say to me, "You'll be playing wing back." But yeah, I think I think he embellished the story a little bit. But you know, I, that's. You know, I've got no issues with Brownie. That's he, that's how he saw it for many a year, and I did did the best I could for him out there. And uh, uh, unfortunately, those were you know Euro '96 and France '98 are, are long in the memory because it's been it's been a heck of a frustrating period since then. But but yeah, uh, playing wing back's not easy. I can remember uh, because you have to. You don't forget playing wing back. You're eventually a winger. Ultimately, you're a winger and you're a fullback. Now, if you've got somebody, a centre-half and a back three, and that's the way we used to play all the time, 3-5-2, Brownie was very stuck in his ways. Apart from the night at Wembley when we beat England and the second leg of the Euro qualifier, he went to a 3-4-3. He changed it slightly because we had to chase it. But ultimately, he was a 3-5-2 man. And when you're playing with a centre-back on the right side, like Colin Calderwood was a great guy, but Colin used to tuck in a little bit because... If you if you push out wide as a centre back, you get exposed. So ultimately, what happens is you have to run the whole length of the field. And I can remember Brownie saying to me one game at half time, "Don't be don't be having me having to phone a taxi for you to get back and all that kind of stuff." Because I remember when games used to start and they used to say, "Look, Craig or Tosh McKinley or Christian Daly, whoever was on the other side, we don't expect you to run the full side for ninety minutes." And Jesus Christ, Callum, the game would start and Alec Miller would be shouting to me, 
at Hamden. You know, get up, get back, get in, get out, get up, get back. And I'm like, I said, I was six foot two when I started this game. I said, I'll be five foot eight by the time the game's finished. So it's a it's a real shift you've got to put in in that position. And it's a bit of a it's a bit of a graveyard shift and it's kind of frustrating at times, but it's something I did for years. It wasn't natural for me, but it's something I did. And Brownie used to think, God God knows why, Brownie used to think I used to do a good job out there. I would disagree, but that's what he used to think. So he was the manager and you just got on with it. Going into the 98 World Cup, um, obviously on that same interview, he said, no, we weren't phased by Brazil. Deep down, were you in the squad phased at all? Do you know, I don't know if phased is the, the, would be the right way to go about it. I was talking to this, talking to somebody the other day about this. And uh, did he tell you the story about when he came down the, the line? No, no, he probably didn't, did he? So I was talking to somebody the other day about this and I said, look, I think it was apprehension because we're on the bus, we've pulled Brazil, they're the world champions, it's the opening ceremony, there's nearly 100,000 there, it's boiling hot, there's Ronaldo, Rivaldo, Cafu, Roberto Carlos, Tafarel, Dunga, Bebeto, who, by the way, Brownie tried to tell, this is, this is Brownie, right? I hope he listens to this. But Brownie's brilliant with the little lines that players never believed him. So pre-game... In the, in the hotel, he names the team. So we pretty much know what the team is because it's steadfast. He's pretty steadfast in his ways and everyone was fit. Uh, so Gary McAllister was out with a cruciate. That was the only thing. Gary couldn't play uh, and couldn't captain the team. So Colin Henry captained the team. So Thursday, the day or two before the game, he names the team. No surprises. Then he gets to the Brazil team, starts going through the Brazil team and what he perceives the Brazil team will be. And he's got all these names up there. And then he gets to Bebeto. Bebeto was a fantastic player. But then he, uh, Brownie did what Brownie always did. He used to slur, slur the opposition players. Christ knows what he was saying about us behind our back. I've got a fair idea. <laughs> but if he's slagging off Brazilian players, he's definitely slagging us off behind their backs, which I know he used to do to the, the journalists. He used to say, how am I supposed to get results with players like this? That's another story. He said, he got to Bebeto and he said, let me tell you about Bebeto. Bebeto was offered to Jim Jeffries at Hearts and Jim Jeffries turned him down. And we're all sitting there going, oh, don't talk stupid. Bebeto was offered to Big Jim, JJ at Hearts, and JJ said, no, not having that. But that's the kind of thing he used to come out with. He once said Didier Deschamps was a poor man, Stuart McCall. And <laughs> we were like, what's he going to say about Zidane in a minute? And then there was a guy playing for Croatia. We played for Croatia. And uh, we played against Croatia in the qualifier. And there was a big guy at the time. Uh, his surname was, was Toldo, I think. And he, wait for this. I think he was playing for Juventus at the time. <laughs> or somewhere like that. And Brownie said, and him at the back, he wouldn't get a game for Cumnock Juniors or Auchin like Talbot. And we're like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, if he's, so that was Brownie's tactics. So if he's saying that about them, what's he saying about us? But that was his tactics. He used, it wouldn't matter who it was. He used to say, ah, they're not very good. And we're like, ah, yeah, yeah, we're not like, listen, you're not kidding anybody here. So we're in the dressing room. So there's an apprehension. Of, uh, sorry, I digress there. But there's so many brownie stories, you know what I mean? It's like uh, you need to do three podcasts to tell all the brownie stories over the years. But we're on the bus. We're going to the game. 
We've done all the preparation. We're seeing all the Scotland fans and the Brazil fans on the way to the game. So nobody wants to admit it to another player. You know, and we had a lot of senior players at the time, a lot of senior guys, and guys that had all played at the highest level. But nobody wants to turn around to another professional who has just won a league title, who's just won a Champions League, you know, Paul Lambert had. You don't want to turn around and say, I'm a wee bit nervous here. But I got the feeling a lot of guys were a little nervous or apprehensive. And I think primarily why it was is you didn't want to let people down. You didn't want to have a bad game. You didn't want to have an embarrassment. And ultimately, that's what could happen against a team as talented as Brazil. But I think there was a bit of apprehension there. Uh, we weren't allowed out in the field to warm up either because of the opening ceremony. So we, there was a little warm-up room, which wasn't ideal. Uh, but it was the same for both teams. And then we lined up in the tunnel. And uh, it was a very wide tunnel. I'll never forget it. And we could see all the dignitaries. So the kickoff, sort of six or seven minutes away by this point. And you walk out in the tunnel and we can see all the, we've done all the chest pumping and all that sort of nonsense and it's time to sort of focus. And we're in the tunnel there and I can see all the gold of Brazil and the, the blue of Scotland and the bands are playing and the streamers are going up and the pyrotechnics. And it's like, that was the moment it was like, right, this is, this is, ain't going to get much bigger because we're not going to win the World Cup. Can't even bloody get there now. And here we are in the opening game, opening the World Cup against the world champions. And then they came out and they were all holding hands like a linked chain. And then they stood there across from us. And we weren't really phased by this, but we understood we were playing against some of the best in the world. But they're all holding hands. Then Brownie comes out, the man that basically, excuse my French, he shits on the Deschamps of this world and the Bebetos, <laughs> right? Out he pops Brownie, knees knocking together, like he, like he always does, with little knees buckled where he's had a bit, you know, he's got no bones left in his knees, basically, from his playing days. He out he comes, knees knocking together. He walks down the middle. <clears throat> he walks down the middle of the two teams in the wide tunnel. He sees the Brazilian holding hands and he turns, it looks at, it looks at us, and he delivers a line I'll never forget. Lads, he says, look at the Brazilians. They're effing shitting themselves. <laughs> and we were like, we all just looked at each other and went, yeah, 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 of course they are. Yeah, they're really, because they were holding hands, they're, they're shitting themselves. So, But that was Brownie. That was, that was Brownie. That was, that was his. He, he, he loved a little line. He loved a little line. He didn't mean it half the time. Uh, but he always had a line that would make you chuckle. Or he'd say something. And I had a lot of time for him. Some people didn't. Uh, not many within that squad uh, had a problem with him. Uh, but I never had an issue with him. Never had an issue with him. Uh, he was good to me. And we had a pretty good team at the time. We didn't have a very good World Cup like most Scotland teams. But we thought we could get out of that group. But it, it it wasn't to be, and you know, kind of regret the fact we didn't get out of the group and be the first Scotland team to get out of the group. Uh, but it was a great experience, and it was a very very good squad uh, at that period in that late nineties to be involved in. See now, when you 
when you reflect on that era, considering we've <clears throat> never even get close really to getting to a tournament, do you look on it with even more fondness now than you maybe did back then? Yeah, there's no doubt you don't absorb everything in at the time as much as you'd want to. Uh, but yeah, I never, I never for one moment thought that we would be talking here now in 2020 and Scotland haven't been to a major tournament since. I never never crossed my mind for a second. I thought I'd be playing at, at, at the Euros in, uh, in, tw- in, in 2000 and the World Cup in 2002. I, I probably took it for granted we would be. Uh, you know, we had a great doubleheader against England. To get us there, we unfortunately came up a bit short. But, but yeah, no, no, there was a great era. Don't forget, you know, the Stuart Mc... And by the way, I say I told that story about Stuart McCall and Deschamps. But Stuart McCall was a heck of a player, uh, but I just told it as as a sort of line, and you know, you know, used to about Didier Deschamps. Stuart was a great player, absolutely loved playing with him. McCoyce was left. McCall, McCall was left out that World Cup squad. McCoyce was left out that World Cup squad. Uh, wouldn't be heard of these days, you know. Uh, you know, playing playing against Rangers in the old firm game, Gascoigne was on the bench. Uh, for Rangers, Gascoigne on the bench. I mean, wow. jury on the bench. It's it's just everything's changed. It's changed days, uh, but you know, it's a shame for Gary McAllister that you know he after Euro '96 and the penalty miss, which happens, that he was going to captain Scotland at the World Cup, and I played in all the qualifiers with him, and nobody was more proud of Gary to to get Scotland to the World Cup as captain, and then he did his cruise ship. You just couldn't make it up, and and he missed it. It's it's you know it's a shame in a football parlance, you know, and in a life parlance, it's neither here nor there. But in a football parlance, it's a real shame. But we had, you know, we had a lot of good guys. I roomed at the Euros in '96 with Scott Gemmell, who was a fantastic guy, and I roomed at the uh, World Cup in France with Paul Lambert, my teammate from Celtic. So uh, they were great experiences. Even the even the dentist from Munich. After I scored in the Norway game, this is a story. Uh, I hope you don't mind. I'm, I hope you don't mind if I'm telling you these odd. No, stories. I really enjoy them. Trust me, it's a pleasure. So I'm lying in bed, and and and, and where were we staying? San San, San Remi or some like that. So I'm in bed. It's about nine or ten in the morning, whatever it is. We're just sort of lounging around. It's the day after, I believe. It's the day after the Norway game. So I've scored the equaliser. And the headline in the Scottish papers was fans a million front page because there's a big picture of me running to the Scotland fans uh, to the to the corner flag with no front teeth <laughs> because I used to have to take them out uh, for safety reasons because when you've got a I'll spare you the gory details but if you've got dentures in and you swallow them you can choke which I'm sure half of Scotland would wish I would do now but that's another story. <laughs> uh, now I have them permanently in. Uh, I have a bridge, which I'm sure half of Scotland would like to knock out, but that's another story as well. But it's <laughs> so I'm in bed, and Lambo's up. I think he's making a cup of tea. I'm like, come on, Lambo, make the tea. So this is a true story. The phone rings in the room, and Lambo picks it up, and it's a dentist from Munich. <laughs> and I, and, and uh, the dentist, dentist from Munich. So he's talking away, and it was he was talking in English, although he could speak a little bit German. Uh, Lambo, he didn't bother his backside to learn it too much when he was over there. So this this dentist is speaking in English 
to Lambo. I'm not speaking to Craig Burley, but so I, th- I think I takes the phone off him, and, and I don't know how the heck they got they got the number of the hotel or whatever, and he offered me he offered to fly me to Munich, and he would because <laughs> he's obviously seen the pictures or the or the he offered to fly me to Munich, and and give me all this dental care for free. It's oh. clearly it was clearly some sort of PR thing for him or them. But they offered I got a phone call the day after the game to offer to take me to Munich. It was either at the end of the tournament, which I said wouldn't be too long by the way. I said, Well it'll not be too long. <laughs> I said we'll be I said we'll be back shortly. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, I, uh, to go over there and get all the dental work done for free and then he would do the PR, which I uh, politely uh, politely declined because I half thought it was a hoax and I half wasn't bothered anyway. Uh, but that's a true story, uh, uh, which was amazing. I was like, honestly, well, I thought Lambo was winding me up, uh, but he wasn't, which, which did take me to another story, which I won't mention the player's name, which Brownie went absolutely bananas about. Brownie was like, Brownie loved, if the media got hold of something, Brownie used to get in a frenzy, right? <laughs> Brownie used to get upset. Brownie used to say to us before Scotland games, we had all these meetings midweek. You know, say the game was on a Saturday or a Sunday. We met up on a Tuesday. You train all week. And Brownie loved the meeting, so he'd have one every night. And it'd be the usual nonsense. He'd throw the usual nonsense out. Uh, but uh, one of the times... Uh, and Brownie used to say, I'm getting letters from fans saying the last game, he's not singing the national anthem, oh Jesus Christ. Uh, we're playing France. That's the least of our worries, you know what I mean? It's that kind of stuff. So, at Euro 96, but he hated all that. He hated all that. He just, he just wanted to keep everybody sweet, particularly the fans and the media. Well, somebody in the media at Euro 96, this is brilliant, it just made us laugh. But he was, in, he was going to self-combobulate over it. He got word, somebody in the media got word that one of one of the players, and I know who it is, but they'll remain nameless on this podcast, uh, had booked their holiday. Because don't forget back then, the internet wasn't so prevalent. So you, this player had gone to a travel agent to book his holiday. But he'd done it. He'd booked his holiday for the day after the final group game. I.e. we were getting knocked out. <laughs> and but, oh yeah, I know. And Brownie got hold of this and went, Jesus Christ, they're going to kill us. They're going to they're going to kill us. And the media said, such and such has booked his holiday for the day after the uh, game against Switzerland at Villa Park. And we were like, oh, we could stop laughing because, you know, clearly they had uh, hedged the bets and thinking that uh, we were going to get knocked out, which we did. Uh, and uh, and Brownie got hold of this and said, the media are going to have a field day. Uh, which they didn't really, because it was you know a bit of a non-story. Because the players just said, "Well, I, you know, booked it for then, and if I had to change it, I did." But you know, he used to get really, he used to get really worried about stuff like that, uh, how the media would you know portray his handling of the the squad. Another player from that era, Scotland, before we go into your club career, I'm I'm desperate to ask about McCoyst. He's so bubbly on the telly, etc. Is that the way he is in real life as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's- you know, Ali's he's a great guy. Uh, I call him tennis boy. He'd now, whenever I, whenever I see him, 
because he, t- he laughs. I mean, when he was over with John Champion and, and uh, working for ITV at the last Euros, uh, John and I are big friends. We were, we were sort of teammates for years with Satanta, uh, ESPN, and for ITV Sport at the World Cup. Uh, and uh, John always John texts me and says, oh, I'm with a, with a friend of yours in the bar. He's keeping me up. And I'd say, oh, tell Tennis Boy Head I'm asking for him because, you know, the old barnet's starting to go the hair. And I always say to McCoy, now that you look, you, I said your head now looks like Buster Mortram's been serving it over the net in a in a five set match. But he just laughs about it. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, but we used to call him Golden Balls because he'd always steal the headlines. You know, like the game against Hamden, uh, game against Greece at Hamden was the last qualifier for Euro '96, and we needed to win. And McCoy's comes off the bench. Free kicker, ball into the box, glancing header, 1-0, jumps the holdings, running away, nobody could catch him, and we're like, there he goes again, grabbing the headlines tomorrow. But that's what McCoy's did. McCoy's, McCoy's got the headlines, McCoy's got the goals. Listen, he was a way, he was a great player, and he would work, and he would chase, and he was a, he's a tough cookie as well, but he's fun. He's fun and he's a great guy to be around. I've worked in TV with him as well. I played with him. Uh, I remember he came to do some work at Satanta in the early days. Uh, I was full time there. He came in to do the odd gig. I remember Rob McLean opened opened up what up, opened up the live show one day and then never got a word in for about ten minutes. Me and McCoy just uh, just started talking and then Rob said, "No, you two will be okay when you get over your shyness, you know." But it was, <laughs> you know. Uh, can't say anything about Ali. Uh, terrific guy. And absolutely, that's how he is. Absolutely, that's how he is. Bubbly guy, lots of stories, lots of fun. But very serious. Very serious as well. And as I say, nobody's full. Tough tough individual too. And, you know, you could, you know, we'd be hard on, on the field as well. But, no, nah, funny, funny guy. See, in terms of your club career, Craig, you are obviously born in Scotland, lived in Ayrshire. How did you get from there to Chelsea? Because a lot of people talk about Billy Gilmore now, young guy going mm-hmm. down to London, yeah, but you yeah. were also very young when you went down there. Hell yeah, 16. 16, wow. Look back now, I mean, I've got three kids. You know, my oldest is 17. My, my, I've got two two boys and you know, my oldest lad's nearly 25 now, my God. Uh, but my youngest is a girl and she's 17 and I look at them and I think, could she couldn't have went they couldn't have went to London at 16 things have just changed but 16 spotty faced skinny kid talking with people say to me now somebody somebody got angry with me about a year ago on social well no no lots of people got angry but some guy got angry about my accent and I'm like listen I've been away from I'm 48 I've been away from home for 32 years I spent two and a half years back in Glasgow when I was at Celtic, living on the south side. But apart from that, I've been away. When I went to London at 16 with a Cumnock accent, where you say it's a bra nicht the nicht, put the, and you say, when you say put the light out, you say put the licht out. I mean, do, do you think, does anybody with a half a brain think anybody in London would know what the hell you're talking about? And so you have to adapt and you have to change. And, but I look back now and I think no mobile phones. They put me in with a family, uh, Ken Von Patterson, who sadly she Ken passed away in two thousand and nine. I went to his funeral. Uh, Avon passed away last year. Uh, God rest her soul. 
I, but I'm still in touch with the grandkids and I'm still in touch with uh, Susan Patterson and Stephen Patterson, their two kids, because I stayed with them for five years, Callum, and I was like family. They treated me like family. And it wasn't a big fancy house in London. It was a council estate. Ken worked for Camden Council. Drove a van. Avon was a cleaner. Working class people, just like my mum and dad. My dad worked at Cumnet Knitwear. And my mum was a my mum was a machinist at Cumnet Knitwear uh, before it shut down. Working class people. And that's where I went. And I stayed with them. And Jesus Christ, I was homesick for six months. When I see these players now, Going, oh, I miss home and all that. They're 25 years old. Oh, I miss, I miss Glasgow. Well, I live in Birmingham. I'm thinking, Jesus Christ. So I thought, there's 10 flights a day. And it's a 40-minute flight. You know what I mean? Get a grip of yourself. It's, and I know everybody's different. But I can tell you it was tough. And, and people say, well, how did you end up there? To cut a long story short, I always wanted to go to England and learn my trade. Because... It goes back to, let me just let, let me just excuse me for a minute till I let my big sheep dog looking dog downstairs. <laughs> he's a, I've got a big golden doodle and he's a lovely big thing, but he wants to go downstairs to see, to see his mommy. Uh, I always wanted to go to England because, because of George Burley, because of Ipswich, because that's all I remembered as a kid. Ipswich in the heyday, Bobby Robson as the manager, Alan Brazil, Josh Burley, Terry Butcher, uh, Franz Tyson, Arnold Murin, oh, amazing team. And so I was drawn to England. George playing in the FA Cup final in 78, beating Arsenal. My dad, I wasn't there. I think my dad was there and my grandparents were there. But just, I just remembered it. And he went down as a kid. That's what he did. And I used to go to Celtic and Rangers and Dundee United and Aberdeen as a kid. And I used to do all those things. And they offered me contracts, you know, they, I was offered to sign, I don't know if it's changed, but they used to be called S-forms when you're between the age of sort of 13 and 16. And I was offered to sign S-forms for all these clubs, but that meant you were tied to that club until 16. So I didn't do this because I wanted to go around and see the different clubs for those that wanted me to go during school holidays to train, which was some of the clubs that I mentioned. And there was, there was some more. But I also used to do the same in England. I used to go down to like Stoke City. I went to Tottenham. I went to Chelsea. I went to Arsenal for a week. Uh, I went to all these different clubs because they were sending scouts to games. And so I would go to England and I would go to Scottish clubs. And one of the reasons I wanted to go to England was not just because I was drawn with that great Ipswich team, was also the, at, at one point they abolished the youth leagues in Scotland. I know it's changed now, but they abolished the under-18s which they never did in England. And so you were going to play every week. And I remember somebody at Rangers of Celtic saying to my dad, well, you'll play in the reserves. And I think, no, at 16 years old, you're not going to play in the reserves much, if at all, because there's all these older players and senior players that are not getting the game. And so I was drawn to England. And I was offered contracts at both Rangers and Celtic to go uh, as a 16-year-old and other clubs. But the two main ones I was offered were Arsenal, in Chelsea, they both offered me contracts at 16. And I, I had gone to Chelsea and I hadn't done particularly well at the time. I did okay. But when I went to Arsenal and spent a week there during school holidays, I spent time with Andy Cole and all these guys because they were all the same age as, as me. Andy Cole, for example, played against me and I played against him in the, the Victory Shield, as it was called then, 
for Scotland schoolboys. We played uh, back back in the day. You played at Wembley uh, for the under 15s. There was a hundred thousand there. It was on ITV. Brian Moore and Kevin Keegan were commentating. That tells you how little football was on the TV back then, because they used to broadcast that uh, that match. And so Andy Cole and a few others were a similar age. So I'd go to Arsenal, and, I, and for whatever reason, I had a really good week at Arsenal. I was nervous when I went, but I settled down quite quickly, and I did really well. And they were straight on the phone to my dad. They wanted me to sign. George Graham was the manager. I think Charlie Nick and those were were down there at the time. It was around about 87, 1987, because I was born in 71. And I, for some reason, I chose Chelsea. Maybe I took the coward's way out because... Arsenal was more of a regime, but it was really more organised. Chelsea was more sort of slack arse. But I ended up going to Chelsea, and I've no regrets. I've met some loads of different people there. But I ended up going there. And uh, before I knew it, I was my 16th birthday, and I could sign. Because you couldn't sign and leave before then. You had to be 16. And I just met my girlfriend at the time, and she's it's my wife now. Uh and she was from, I was from Cumnock, she's from New Cumnock. And I said, I was getting, I was having second thoughts because I was, I had a girlfriend and I was getting nervous and I was starting to change my mind because it's a big move. It's a big thing to leave home, you know, never, you know, moving from Cumnock to a big city. And I said to my dad, I don't think I'm going to do this. And he basically kicked my ass out the door and said, you're gone. Because he knew it was the best thing for me. It's where I was going to learn my trade the best. Sure, the life experience was going to be the best because I was going to have to fend for myself. I was going to have to grow up fast. And I was going to have to navigate my way through London and all this sort of stuff and fend for myself. So I went there on, and wait to hear this, I went there on a YTS program as we all had to be in the time. Everybody who was an apprentice in England was on £28 a week. <laughs> £28 a week. £100, £100 a month. Right, and the second year it was thirty-five, and then you got your pro contract if they offered you one. But as I say, no mobiles, Callum. Living in Kenneth Orange is great. I had to call home from a from the old red phone booth. That's how you called home, or you wrote letters. And I was homesick like hell for about three six months, and then it went, and then it kind of went away, and then I was fine. I was absolutely fine after that. And I got such I got such the life experience in that first two to three years that it was so invaluable that I can't tell you how much it made you grow up because you're basically on your own. And uh, Billy Dodds came and stayed with me for a while because he was he was in between his loan spell at Dundee and then he came back and then he went to Partick Thistle and then the people that he was staying with. His landlord and landlady, they decided they weren't going to do it anymore. And so he asked if my Ken and Vaughan would take anybody else on. And, and, and so they said, yeah. So Dodgy and I were both there for a period. I can't remember exactly, maybe a year or two. And then he left and signed for Dundee, I think, full time and went back to Scotland. But we spent, I've got, I was looking through the photos the other day. There were some great photos of Dodgy and I there. I mean, they're not great. You should see the hairstyles. Oh, my God. <laughs> She's here, spotty kids, and but we've got photos of Dodgy and I with Ken Vaughan, and uh, you know, and I know he's kept in touch with 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 the family and and that, and and I have as well. 
but that that was just a heck of an experience. So you got to so you're down there, you're learning your trade. You're away from home. You haven't got a pot to piss in, basically, because the money's just not there. And the other thing is, is they put me in a house in North London. And I can I always say to people now, I consider myself a North Londoner because I stayed in North London for nearly ten years. You know, I moved out. I moved out to Hertfordshire, but I love North London. And I could, you know, when I go to London now, I can navigate my way around London like nobody's business in a car or whatever. Because I met so many people when I learned all the little back roads to miss traffic. But they put me in North London, Childs Hill, Crickerwood Lane, near Golders Green. The training ground at the time, the training grounds in in, in, uh, in uh, Cobham now, Surrey. But it used to be out by. It used to be in a place called Hayes and Harlington. And it was an old university ground. And Chelsea used to rent it. QPR train there now, since Chelsea moved to their custom-built one. And it was just out near Heathrow. Now, obviously I couldn't drive because I had no money and I was only 16 uh, at the time. So every morning I had to walk. To save money, I walked. I'm not, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not wanting them to feel sorry here. I just, I'm, I'm just trying to tell the story of... You know, and I wasn't the only one. A lot of the other apprentices had to do the same. Some were some were from London, so they were living from home. But there was a lot of guys from Ireland and Wales and different parts of England. There was other Scottish guys there as well. And they were all dotted around London with different families. You know, some of us were within 20 minutes, half an hour of each other. Some of, some were within, some were two hours away if you factor in the London traffic. But I would walk from my, I would get up, I can't remember what time. I'd get up early in the morning. I would walk from my uh, digs, uh, to Golders Green Tube Station. I would uh, get on a tube from Golders Green to Edgware, Northern Line, because uh, you had to learn all the tubes as well, all the different lines so that you could navigate getting home and all that. And then I would go from Golders Green to, to Edgware. I would get on a bus, I, can't, I think it was a 187 or something, from Edgware to Harrow on the Hill. And then I would catch another bus from Harrow on the Hill to Hayes and Harlington. And I would get off at Hayes and Harlington and then walk about a mile to the training ground. And that would take about, oh, I'm guessing, thinking back now, hour and a half to two hours when you patch it all together. Then you had to clean all the, make sure all the pros, because you were allocated some professionals. I had Mickey Hazard, Kerry Dixon, great guys, great players. Tony Dorigo. Tony Dorigo is an interesting one because I was cleaning Tony's boots when he was at Chelsea and I was an apprentice. And then when I was at Derby, I was Tony's captain. That's ama- it's an amazing swing around, isn't it? Because Tony yeah. was at Dar- Tony was at Derby uh, when I signed from Celtic. Uh, fantastic guy, great player, and I was his captain. 1987, I was cleaning Tony's boots as, a, as, a, as he was a youngster, as he was a sort of 21-year-old at Chelsea. But you get all the pros kit ready, then you train, and then Gwyn Williams, the coach, after training, you'd get all you clean all the the dressing rooms at the training ground. You would uh, uh, make sure all the pros' boots were clean. You'd sweep up all the dressing rooms. Uh, then you'd load everything onto the back of the bus, the mini bus. Everybody would jump in. Coach would drive you back from Heathrow, or just out that way, Hazen Hallington. He would drive you back to Stamford Bridge because there was no laundry service at the training ground. You get all the kit off at Stamford Bridge. You'd get it all in. You get there was a laundry lady there. She'd wash. She'd have all the kit washed from the day before. You then repack the day before's kit. You'd pack it all up because the shorts and the shirts all had numbers on them. So you'd get all your pros' numbers. You'd make sure he had his socks, his, his shorts, his top, 
everything would all be tied up together, packed on the kit, the kit van for the next day, everything cleaned up and ready. And when the coach came in, Gwyn, he would check everything was done and no player could leave until every single player had done his job properly. And only in that, only, and, and so that was a bit of a, it's a bit of a kind of regimental thing, but oh, you could only leave and go home if Joe Bloggs, if Jason Cundy, who will be a familiar name, that's why I've said it to a lot of people, because <laughs> Jason, Jason was an apprentice with me, although he's an older, he's a year or two older. Uh, if Jason hadn't done his job properly, whether that be cleaning the bathroom, cleaning the toilet, hoovering the floor, if he hadn't done his job properly, then I couldn't leave. Or, if, you know what I mean? So everybody had to have done their job properly and only only then could you leave. And you would then have to sort of repeat the process of getting home. But it was mainly on the tube from Stamford Bridge uh, back then. And you'd go and you'd get home late. And, and, and that, that was the life of an apprentice back in the day. And, and, and you know, the thing is as well, I'll tell you how things have changed. We had a £2 allowance at, at, at Fulham Broadway Station, which Tube Station, which is the nearest station to uh, Stamford Bridge. There's a, wait to hear this. <laughs> the modern day sports scientists would be having seizures. We had a £2 allowance at the local kebab and hamburger shop. <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. And it had a little sit, sit down inside. You could go in and sit down and you could order milkshakes, hamburgers, fries, kebabs. And there was a list with all their names on it behind the counter. And we had to sign that every day we went in. And we had a £2 allowance, which actually got you some food back then. But clearly it wasn't pasta or anything like that. And every time we would go in, the guy would hold the thing up and say... I tell Gwen, no pay, no pay, no pay, because they never got paid half the time because the club had no money. And and that's how we survived. That's how that club was at the time. And that's how the apprentices had to learn the trade. And do you know what? When I see some of them now, it frustrates me because they're not allowed to do all those crappy jobs now. But then, because they're out working on their technical skills, but are there any? Are we seeing more kids coming through, or less kids coming through? Are they any better for it? I think what we're seeing now is less kids that are grounded because that gave you, and all the apprentices had to do it. Didn't matter if you were Gary Neville back back then, if it was Gary Neville or David Beckham or or whoever it was, Arsenal, Ray Parler. Everyone had to do it at their own, at their respective clubs, and guess what? All those guys appreciated when they became professionals. Because they came through having done all that crap and you had to still go and earn your stripes and become a professional. And it made you it made you want to be that professional. When you saw those professionals and you were doing all those crappy jobs, you wanted to be them. And it, it was a heck of a grounding for two years. It, it was hard graft. I mean, we'd get home two or three times a year. You'd say to Gwen, you'd get, you'd, you'd get home for three or four days can I go home? No, no, not that, not whatever. At Christmas, you'd go home for a few days and they say, enjoy yourself because when you're coming back, you're going to A, be running and B, you're going to be painting the stadium at Stamford Bridge. That's, that's how the apprentices were. That's how apprenticeships were back in the day. And I tell you what, 
wouldn't change it for the world. Let me tell I I made it. Jason Cundy, Graham Stewart, Nathan Blake, Frank Sinclair, Eddie Newton. I mean, there's just, that's just out of one. That's just out of one club. And there's, and there's more than that. I just can't remember all the names. All those guys went on to play for years and years and years at, at, at the top of at the top of uh, of their sport it's no surprise they all learned the hard way absolutely in terms of that humility as you said moving in with a family um, that humility and working class element isn't in the game now especially at the elite level anyway because kids are getting silly money yeah. I mean you talked about moving to London at 16 imagine the equivalent now yes you'd maybe go to London at 16 but you'd probably be earning 10 grand a week in some cases yeah, you'd be on you'd be on crazy money, and you'd be in some posh apartment. I'm, I, listen, I, I don't begrudge them that, but I I only ask the question: uh, Is that a good psyche for a young kid? And I I personally don't think it is. I I I think yeah, I think it's important to learn. I think it's important to see the tough times, to enjoy the good times, and. Uh, I wouldn't change that. I wouldn't change that apprenticeship for the world. I really wouldn't. I just I have so many fond memories, but it was it, it was an eye opener at the time. I mean, it 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 really was. Uh, but the kids now, it's just different for them, you know. And it is tougher to break through. And but the money, the money side of it for the youngsters is a problem. Uh, you know, it's just you know. But you know, it is what it is. It's it's. Uh, you know, the, I tell you, the pros were great to the kids as well. Kerry Dixon, you know, Vinnie Jones, you know, they were good. Mickey, Mickey Hazard, Graham Roberts, who came down, you know, they understood. And, you know, they were great to the kids. They really were. And it, it was fantastic. It was, fun, it was fantastic times. It's, uh, you know, but uh, Chelsea fans can't, <laughs> I'm saying all this, Chelsea fans can't understand why I don't carry them any favour. But, you know, it's... I, that, you know, I've still got so many fond memories of, of, of my time at the club. In terms of your time there, you talked at the start of your playing career there about wanting to go to England and loving that Ipswich team, etc. Yep. See when Glenn Hoddle was your manager, what was that like? Because I imagine he was a player you looked at and thought, what a player. Yeah, I never admired many people as a kid. I don't mean that in a bad way. A lot of kids are in awe now, you know, people. But I, I, I generally just watched football and loved I love watching. I mean, I, I, you know, go out in the back, out, out the back of the council house, and 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 come like I'd watch the World Cup in 1982, and I just half time I'd get out kicking the ball against the garage. You know that I thought I'd, I'd try to be someday. I, I would be this guy or that guy, and you know. But you know, when I went to Chelsea, we, we went through a lot of managers. You know, as a young kid when I was there, you know. Uh, John Holland's got the sack when Bobby Campbell was in and Dave Webb part-time and Ian Porterfield was manager of well, God rest his soul. He's not, he's not there anymore. He's not here. He's not with us anymore. Uh, you know, Bobby Campbell was passed away now. He, he could be really hard on the kids, you know, and really gruff. Uh, you know, he, he'd be tough. He, he could drain your confidence. And, but they were all different. But then Glenn came in and Glenn was a player that I just remembered as a kid growing up being this sublime passer of the ball and in some sense that was one of Glenn's biggest downfalls as a manager uh, 
was that he used to get frustrated because for those that remember Glenn Hoddle playing, Glenn would just spin a pass outside of the foot, inside of the foot. He could drop it on a sixpence. Fantastic player. Just incredible talent. But he, even though we were Premier League footballers, you know, he, get, he got frustrated that play, some players couldn't do what he could. And he couldn't, he couldn't let that go. And that was one of his downfalls, I think, was in, in his man management. Later on in his career, I never had an issue with him, to be honest with you. Uh, but I know when he went to Tottenham, there were some problems there with you know, some big players, maybe with Sheringham and others. Uh, I, because a lot of these guys couldn't do what he did, and that frustrated Glenn. But he was a nice guy. Peter Shreves came with his assistant, and uh, Peter was... I'm a hugely experienced coach and former manager of Tottenham and other clubs. And they were a partnership and that was fantastic times. And we didn't have a great side, but we got to, uh, we, we were getting better and better. We didn't have much money, uh, but we got to the cup final under Glenn, first cup final in, I think, 20 odd years. And I started playing regular and John Spencer started playing regular. And, and we had a decent little team and, you know, a lot of different guys there from Norway, like Erlen Jonsson and, Dennis Wise was there, and Dimitri Karin, who was number one goalie there from Russia. He was a Russian number one. Dimi couldn't speak a word of English when he came in, uh, but fantastic fellow. still living in, in England and, and hasn't gone back to Russia and speaks English perfectly. Lovely, lovely guy. We had, we had a really good mix. Frank Sinclair, as I mentioned from the youth team, I played in the cup final. Frank played in the cup final. Eddie Newton played in the cup final. All guys that come through the youth team. Gavin Peacock was a player we signed from Newcastle. Uh, lots of lots of good times there. And we were improving. Glenn had signed Rude Hullet, World Player of the Year twice. Mark Hughes. So things were just starting to evolve. And then Glenn was offered the England job. And I think that job came a little bit too soon. But it was a job that he couldn't turn down because he might never be asked again. So it's totally understandable that, that Glenn took the job. And... Uh, and and then Rude Hullet replaced him uh, as as you know played with Rude for for a year, and then he was my player manager for a year, and he was another guy that had been there and seen. I mean, he as I say, World Footballer of the Year twice. At one point, he was the best player on the planet. There's no doubt about that. Guy was a guy was an animal, six foot four, strong as an ox, skillful as hell, fast as hell. Doesn't get much better than that. And uh, even at 34. He still had a lot of those attributes. And, and in terms of him as that in, in that managerial role, what was he like? Because I know obviously when people talk about him at Newcastle and Shearer, there was issues there. But was he a good man manager, or again was the frustration of his standards as a player too high yeah. for maybe some of the guys you had? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't say to him. And uh, he, he he sold me to Celtic, but it's it's. Uh, you know, people get the wrong impression. I'm not better at Rude selling me to Celtic or Chelsea selling me to Celtic because they offered me a contract to stay four years. But I didn't I wasn't able to come to an agreement with them. And they offered me a testimonial. But I don't kid myself. Kerry Dixon got four thousand at his testimonial. And I'd probably get one man and a dog. By the time I paid the police, I'd have been out of pocket. So it wasn't worth anything to me. And so we couldn't come to terms in an agreement on a four-year deal that they'd offered me because, you know, they were paying the money to 
Gianluca Viali and Gianfranco. So, and that's understandable. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want the money they were getting because I knew I wasn't going to get it. But I wanted a little bit better parity than I, than I was getting. It was like the youth team guys get get paid less. Yeah, we'll pay them less because they've been here a while. And so, as a stubborn kind of person, I dug my heels in. Now, what was going to happen was with the Bosman ruling. I was in the last year of my contract coming up, and so they were going to lose me, and they knew they could get a fee for me. So it wasn't rude selling me for selling me sakes. It was because the club wanted to get the two and a half million, which they got from Celtic, which was a lot of money back in the day. And that was the reason I left, uh, and I went to Celtic. Because uh, uh, we were on pre-season at the time, down in Devon at Nigel Mansell's complex. He's got a big golf complex down there, and sports complex. We were down there, and Eddie Nizveski, the coach, came in and said, you know, we've agreed a fee with Celtic and you need to go and do your medical. So it all came rather quickly. Uh, so I don't have an issue with Rude in that factor. I did have a bit of an issue with him leaving me out the cup final in 97. He completely left me off the bench when I played in the semi-final and all that. I had more, I had more of an issue with that. But, but Stevie Clark later told me, who was a big friend of mine, Stevie said to me, uh, well, you got left out the cup final because you wouldn't sign a contract. And I said, well, I'm not going to sign my life away just to play in a cup final, as important as it was. And I was gutted. Oh, I was gutted at the time when I wasn't playing at Wembley, having played in a cup final in 94 against Man United and lost. I know how big it was. And having played in the semi-final at Highbury against Wimbledon, I was expecting that was to be on the bench. As it turns out, with only two subs, he put Gianluca Vialli on the bench and he put Andy Myers on the bench and he gave me the old the elbow. Uh, which was, you know, I, I'm not going to lie and say I was almost in tears. But, you know, you've got to move on from that. But And this has got no bearing on what I'm going to say to you now because others will tell you the same. He was a dreadful man-manager. Which sounds maybe better after what I've told you. But go and ask the rest of the players. Go and ask what happened at Newcastle. Go to MLS where he went in and didn't bother to learn about the system and was kicked out because he went to an MLS draft and you've got to take so many youngsters because Stevie Nichol went through it with 10 years of coaching the New England Revolution and he says, you have to take players you don't want because most of them are not good enough, but you have to take your quota. And he went to this draft and said, I'm not taking any of them. He said, you don't understand how it works. You have to take a quota. So, and when he went to Newcastle, he had big problems. But he couldn't manage players, and he was a lovely guy. Do you know, he'd, but you'd, go, you'd say to him, Rude, can I come and see you after training? I want, I've got a little bit of an issue, and I want to have a chat with you. Because I, play, I played quite a lot under him, and I, I enjoyed him. And, and cl I respected him. But you would, go, this is, you would go in to see him at the training ground, and as I explained earlier to you, Callum, the training ground was two mile, three mile from Heathrow. Yep. You'd, you'd go in to see him after training. So training would finish, he'd go in, and you might do a little bit of shooting or do some sprints. You'd go in, jump in the shower, go and bang on his door. Knock, 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 no answer. Knock. Say to Rick, say Graham Rex or Gwen Williams, where the hell is he? Oh, he's in a taxi. He's gone. What do you mean he's gone? Well, he's in a taxi. He's gone, he's gone to Amsterdam. Heathrow. Jumped in the taxi, out to Heathrow, bing, bang, bish, bash, bosh, on the flight, back to Amsterdam for a night or two. But he, he told you, he, he told you in training, you can come and see him after training. And then I know I wasn't alone, <laughs> that he would, players would go to see him when he wasn't there. 
You can't do that to players because it's disrespectful. And players started to players started to turn a little bit on him. And then when I left, went to Celtic, which I'm extremely thankful for because it was a great club. I loved it. Uh, when I left and went there, things took more turns for the worse. And then Ken Bates had enough and just got rid of him and gave Gianluca Vialli the job, who, by the way, is and 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 he's just recovering from cancer. By the way, Gianluca Vialli, and he's been what a what a guy, what a guy. And I had a great relationship with him, and as I did with all the Italians, Gianfranco Zola, Roberto Di Matteo. These guys are just super professionals. Fabrizio Ravanelli at Derby. People say Fabrizio Ravanelli. It pisses me off. People say Ravanelli was in England for the money. People go on radio and stuff and say, you know, ex-players and say Ravanelli and so they're greedy. I've seen Ravanelli. Ravanelli's a friend of mine. I've seen Ravanelli training. I've seen Viali training. I've seen Zola training. These guys don't have a day off. They don't drink much, if at all. They don't have a day off. They're last to leave the training ground. They're first to come in. And if they're forced to have a day off, they go to the gym. And that's all these guys. That's why they're at the top of their game. That's why they are at the top of their game and we're at the top of the game. But when things started to turn at Chelsea, uh, we're rude and things progressively got worse. Batesy got rid of them. Because Batesy, Ken Batesy, the owner at the time, was no nonsense. You know, he once walked into a state, he once walked into Sheffield Wednesday when we were playing them and there was a few injuries. And he came in the dressing room after the game and I think we'd drawn. And he says, keep up the good work till the good players are fit. That's Batesy. He's got no subtleties. <laughs> he had no subtleties. Keep up the good work till all the good players are fit. Yeah, all right, chairman. And he biffed him off because he'd had enough. And he brought Gianluca in and the players loved uh, Luca Vialli. And I went back down there for treatment uh, about six months into my first season at Celtic because I was going to I was going somewhere and I said to me, Brian Scott at Celtic, uh, I'm going to London for some and I'm going to go and get some treatment while I'm there. And he went, yeah, yeah, no bother. Scotty was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. One of the greatest, one of the best guys I've ever worked with, Brian Scott. What, what happened to him at Celtic was a disgrace. But that's another story. Uh, and I went in to see the physio, Mike Banks at the time, in my time in London. And he gave me a little bit of treatment. And Gianluca came in and he said, if you'd only waited another six months, I'd have given you what you wanted because he wanted me to stay. I said, well, that's life, Luca. You know, I'm not, I'm at Celtic now and I loved it at Celtic. I was loving it there. But, you know, who knows what's around the corner. If I'd stayed a little bit longer, things, I might have stayed at Chelsea for the rest of my career. But as things turned out, I made the move and I don't regret it because I went to a fantastic club in Celtic, but but it's no surprise Rude hasn't gone back into man man back into management because you don't the most important thing, Callum, in management, and I've experienced it, and I've worked with some of the, and it's one of the reasons I left Celtic because Celtic, things got too political in the end at Celtic with the, all the regime changes, and I wanted to go and work for a guy who was no nonsense, who was non-political, and who just told you black is black and white is white. And that was Jim Smith, who died recently. He was a great guy. But Jim, Jim always said, you know, 80 to 90% of being a manager is man management. 10, 20% is coaching. And so if you can't man manage players, you're screwed from the offset. You'll never survive. You could be the greatest coach on the planet, right? 
you're never going to survive in that head coach role, stroke manager, if you can't manage players. It's no different to any business. It's no different to an office. You're going to lose the office if the manager is a complete tosser. You're just going to, it's just going to go downhill. And football is no different. And so, therefore, if you can't man-manage, uh, you're screwed. And that was Rude's problem. When I went to work with people like Jim Smith, Jim Smith once told me a great story. He says, a coach once told him, Jim, and he took this on board. Somebody said to Jim, uh, how do you motivate players, Jim? And Jim was a character. Jim was <laughs> one of the greatest. Honestly, I've heard so many stories about Jim when he signed me. But uh, you might need to carve this podcast up, you know, Callum. I hope you're okay with that. Uh, not a problem at all. When I had Joey Barton on, he was six hours, so it's not a problem. Yeah, you can carve it up, mate. I don't mind at all. I'm happy to give people my time when I can. I, I'm, people think I'm an asshole. That's fine. But I can tell you, my mate, I don't fraternise whilst if I can help it with like showbiz football. I, I'm, I fraternise with my mates at the golf club and down the pub. I'm, I try to be genuine with people. And so I'm just trying to give you a, a little flavour. But Jim said, somebody said Jim, journalist, Jim, you've been a great motivator. How, how have you motivated players all your career in management? And Jim and his great volume, Jim used to talk like that. He says, it's easy. He said, what I do is, whenever I go to a new club, Newcastle, QPR, Portsmouth, Derby, what I do is, I go in, I get all the players in the dressing room and I go in, I stand in the middle and I walk round and I figure out all the players that I need to motivate. And then I get rid of the bastards. <laughs> and I thought that was a great line. That's brilliant. He did. He says, and then I get rid of the bastards. Because if you need motivated to be in this job, getting paid this money, playing for this club, I don't want you at my club. And I thought that was a great line from Jim. And in some sense, it's true. Another sense, it's not, because everyone's different. But I thought it was a great line. And, you know... You know that, that's that was his man management style, and I uh, I just love that line. If I need to mo- if I need to motivate them, I get rid of them, and I think that's quite true. That's tremendous, and and from Chelsea, as you mentioned, to Celtic, yeah, um, that was a move. Obviously, being a Scotland international, um, being playing in, in the Premier League, what was it like coming back up to Scotland? Because you know, and you've been you've spoke about it before. When you join either Celtic or Rangers, it's just such a goldfish bowl. Yeah, and I've I've been on record saying this. I had no intention of going back to Scotland, uh, none whatsoever, and not 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 to, not for any bad reasons. But I I was enjoying living in England, and you know I still could, look. I'm Scottish and I'm patriotic, but if I move back from America, I'll move back to Nottingham. You know, our oldest still lives there. He didn't move to the states with us. He's got a job and. And, and, you know, girlfriend and that there. But I consider Nottingham my home. I consider London my home. I, I don't envisage ever moving back to Scotland. Uh, might, I might have to one day. Maybe, maybe it'll happen. It's not for any other reason than I've been so long away. Uh, so I never envisage moving back. Although there is a story to the Celtic thing because uh, Lou McCary had... <laughs> Lou McCarry, before he became Celtic manager, was at Stoke and had tried to take me to Stoke. In fact, he called me one day at home. 
right? I was in the house one day and was, the wife and I bought our first home. You couldn't swing a cart in it, right? In, in, in Hertfordshire, you know, you know, it's, everything's expensive down there. And we, we managed to, you know, scramble a bit of money up. We bought this tiny little two bedroom thing. I, I remember, I remember for the cup final in '94, all the family come down. It looked like a scene from Saving Private Ryan, right? There was no, there was no bodies everywhere because it was so. So I'm in this house, and the phone rings. And Sunday afternoon, and uh, his voice says, "Craig, it's Lou McCary. I want you to go to. I want you to go to Stoke." And I went, "Piss off!" And I put the phone down. I said, Lou, <laughs> freaking Lou McCary ringing me. He said, "About ten seconds later, it rings again." He went, "No, no, it's Lou. It's Lou." I was, honestly, I went, "Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, Lou." I said, "I thought it was a wind up." And he said, "Not." So he called me and he wanted me to go to Stoke. And uh, we had a discussion. And not long after that, uh, he got the Celtic job. And then he tried to take me to Celtic. So for some reason, he quite liked me. It's just, you know, everybody likes different players. He must have thought there was some potential there. So he wanted to take me there. Then, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. Uh, never heard from him again. Then he got the sack. And then Tommy, Tommy Burns tried to take me there. Uh, and for, I was playing at Chelsea at the time, regular. And for whatever reason, the, you know, Chelsea said they weren't selling. And so, but Tommy had said, and Andy Ritchie, who was scout at the time, and David Hay, who was there, fantastic people, fantastic, fantastic people. And I can't tell you, David Hay, and I'm sorry about, you know, not talking about Tommy because, you know, I know it's been many, many years now and I can't believe it since Tommy sadly passed away because he's such a genuine guy, such a lovely man. And he wasn't there. He wasn't around when I signed for Celtic because he, he just left. Uh, and, but David Hay was. And David Hay, for those that don't know David personally, David Hay did everything in the game and won everything. David Hay and his family could not have done enough for me and my family when I moved Andy Ritchie was great chief scout but David living on the south side I ended up moving to Newton Mearns I think David lived at Giffnick at the time or thereabouts I wasn't that familiar with Glasgow to be quite frank with you uh, because I, I, I didn't spend much time there as an airship boy so we bought a house in Newton Mearns uh, and David David couldn't have been nicer Craig if you need any help Craig if you need anything if you need this if you need that if you need a decorator if you need a he helped me so much. I'm still thankful to this day for people like that. Great people. And if I ever see him, in fact, I need to give him a call. I was speaking to a friend of mine in Glasgow who knows him the other day, uh, Wee Robert, who a big Celtic guy. Uh, and I said, how's David? And how's Jack Mohern, the club doctor? And Ian Donald, the doc. And all these guys were working at Celtic. Jack Mohern was the club doctor. And he says, they all still ask for you. And I said, no, tell them I'm asking for them. Because I've got so much respect for these people. And Davey, I've got so much respect for uh, them all, Brian Scott, because they're just genuine people. And when you go to a new club, Callum, you need help. You know, you need help. You need guidance. And, you know, people like that are invaluable. But I didn't envisage going. And it was a bit of a shock when it came about because the clubs agreed a fee. And uh, before I knew it, I was doing a medical and agreed terms pretty quickly. <clears throat> and uh, whisked away and did all my stuff and 
yeah, before I knew it, I was a Celtic player, and that was, I was, I tell you, I was nervous. I was really nervous going to Celtic, really nervous. In terms of the nerves you've talked about there, and I'm not just saying this to blow smoke up your ass because you've been very kind enough to come on the show and give me your time, but I've been lucky enough to interview several members of the team that stopped 10 in a row, and every single one of them has mentioned your name, and they say, what a player Craig Burley is. And Darren Jackson, when he was on, he said, asked him who the most underrated player is, and he says, I wouldn't for a minute say that that Craig was underrated because that would be disrespectful because he's not, because he was a top player. He said, but see at Celtic, he said, he, were, he the form he was in that season, he says, it was just phenomenal and, and people forget that quite easily. Yeah, all the boys, I speak highly of all the boys and, and you know, we, we it wasn't, you know, I did not get Celtic over the line. Henrik Larson didn't get Celtic over the line. Alan Stubbs didn't. Matt Reaper, nobody got that group of players got Celtic over the lives. An unbelievable squad of players. Uh, but, you know, I was nervous because, you know, Paul McStay had just retired. Who had Paul, who I'd played with with Scotland. Lovely man, great player. Uh, worshipped by the Celtic fans. I was taking his number eight jersey. I was moving in the middle of the park. Celtic fans had seen me playing for Scotland as a wing-back. wasn't very exciting. Uh, I knew... Listen, I, I, I knew... I, the fans were nice to me when they came, but I, I, wasn't, an, I wasn't an exciting signing. I wasn't Paolo Di Canio and Van Hoydonk and, and that. So I, I knew I had to win the fans over. Everybody did. And, and you know, that, that's, that's a big... It's a big weight on your shoulders. So I knew that. I did I was replacing a legend and I had to win the fans over. And that was that was nervous. That was pressure. And I had to uh win Vim Jansen over as well, because I wasn't a Vim Jansen signing. I was already on the books. I was already in the radar before he got there. I mean Henry Larson would have been a Vim Jansen signing. Paul Lambert might have been. At that time, Darren and myself and all these guys, Johnny Gill, probably Stephen Mahe, none of us, maybe even Matt Reaper, probably Matt Reaper. I don't think any of us were a Janssen signing. I might be wrong. You know, obviously, Henrik was a nailed-on one because the fire had connection and, and they, knew, they knew there was a clause in the contract. Uh, so I had to win all these guys over. Uh, but they were great. Murdo uh, McLeod was a big help as well. Uh, when he was there and, and things got off to a great start because we played uh, who did we play we played Parma in a friendly pre-season friendly before the season started and, and don't forget the Scottish season that at that point started two or three weeks before the English season so that, so I had only just gone back to pre-season at, at uh, Chelsea whilst the Celtic boys were three weeks in so by the time I got to Celtic I was miles off my fitness because of that, those reasons. And I was like, I signed on the Thursday, I think, eventually, after I did all the medicals, which was quite stringent. Uh, and then they were playing Parma on the Saturday, and I was like, at Celtic Park. And there was going to be a big crowd there, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, don't pick me. I'm not fit. Don't play me. Don't play me. Don't play. I didn't want to play. Oh, I was cacking myself. I didn't want to play. Because first impressions last. And I knew I was chasing my fitness. 
and he freaking plays me. Jansen, I could have killed him. He names me in the team to play. And I don't know how, there was 40,000 there, I think. And I don't know how. I don't know how I managed it. But I played really well. Must have been a fluke. I played really <laughs> well. Or it was either that or Parma couldn't be asked Because Parma had a good side at the time. And I was pinging these balls all over the place, playing all these great passes and that. And, I, and then he took me off because I wasn't fit after about, I'm just, I'm, I'm guessing now, 60 or 70 minutes. I, I can't remember. And I got an ovation because I'd played really well. And I thought, oh, thank Christ for that. Because it could have went the opposite way. Because, you know, as I say, first impressions last. And I was, I, I, I didn't sleep the night before. Because I didn't want to make a really bad... I didn't want to go out and make an arse of it. Because when you're not fit, you, you really can do that. Because if a, if a really fit player can, be, can play badly, and it happens, then a really unfit one who's just started pre-season can definitely play badly. And so for me, that was a huge moment. That gave me an awful lot of confidence. But I, but I, but I still knew with the first game coming up around the corner at Hibs, I, still, I knew he was going to play me, but I knew I was chasing my fitness. And every day after training, Janssen would take me out onto Celtic Park because we used to train at Barrafield uh, at the time, uh, which I loved. I know they've got this new big facility at Lennox Town, but I loved the old shitty Barrafield because we used to drive down there. And, uh, you know, we used to jump in somebody's car, three or four of us would jump in the car, we'd drive down, try and avoid getting a speeding ticket because uh, they'd always be waiting for us, the police, because they knew we were coming. And uh, train at Barrafield, get in the cars, go back to Celtic Park, have a shower. And then Vim used to take me back out in the afternoon onto the pitch and I used to do box-to-box running strides to work on my fitness before the season started. And he knew I was chasing my fitness, so we'd work on that. But I knew going into the first couple of games that I wasn't 100% fit. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what happened. I, I didn't, uh, we didn't play well against uh, Hibs away, uh, live on Sky, and Dunfermline at home, uh, we lost both games. We didn't play well. I played terrible. And the crowd were howling for blood. Howling for blood. Particularly after the Dunfermline game, when they beat us 2-1 at home, with all these new signings, with a new manager who they wanted to kill. And I remember going over to the old jungle side, uh, in about 85, 85th minute or whatever it was to grab the ball and take a quick throw in and someday at least one person shouted hey Budley why don't you fuck off back to Chelsea quickly and I was like do you know what that sounds like a great idea because we were getting hammered at the time and so that was a terrible start. I might be wrong, but I think if we'd lost the next league game, so that would have been three straight league games, I think I might be wrong, but I think I can remember somebody saying it would have been the worst league start in Celtic's history. And clearly with 10 in a row on the line that season, <laughs> that wasn't ideal. So it was a hit. <laughs> it was a baptism of fire, put it that way. And that, that just piled the pressure on even more. Well, the pressure piled on in a way that Rangers will, will face next season in Scotland. And as I say, I'm not going to draw you any comment on the game now, but you know what it's like. It's a goldfish bowl at the best of times. But with that season, when I spoke to Alan Stubbs in particular, he's been on the record a number of times, as have a lot of you. 
and he basically said the team spirit was just incredible in terms of the bond between the players to make sure that that season, the 10 in a row was stopped, no matter what. Yeah, do you know, do you know, I don't think, I mean, it clearly mattered. Uh, and I don't think, I think so, I think a lot of fans do, a lot of Celtic fans see it as, as after winning the European Cup as one of the most important seasons for that reason. Uh, I think there's a lot of Celtic fans see it that way and I think a lot of them appreciate the pressure that, that, that we were under because it was it was very up and down. Uh, but, you know, I don't think it would have mattered with that group of players if, it, if we were trying to stop 10 in a row or not. I just think that group had so much balls, it was incredible. Might not have been the best, most talented Celtic team that was ever put together, I don't care. There's been lots of talented teams that have won sod all. There was a lot of talent. There was a, Tommy Tommy Burns' team played magnificent football, but couldn't quite get over the line. And when you look at Rangers and you're playing against Goff, and you, you know I mentioned to you, you know Gascoigne on the bench, Jury on the bench. You know uh, you're playing against McCoyst and Gorham and Goff and Alberts. You know this is not 2020 playing against. Some guys you'd have to look, you have to look up Wikipedia now to find find out who some of them are. The times have changed, so it was it was huge, but there was so much winning mentality in that dressing room, and I include I include everybody, the Scandinavian boys that come in, Enrico, magnificent, go and tell them to do a job. You know, the one the only one thing they play, the only one thing we couldn't get our head around, Enrico Enrico would go out wearing a green boot and a white boot, you know, and all that sort of nonsense. The fans loved them. But Enrico got away with everything. You know, we'd try, it's, you know, Stubbs would come out the back and try a 45 yard ping and it'd go over the, it goes sailing miles over, or I'd try it, it goes sailing miles over, and it'd be like, ooh, what are you shooting from there for? Enrico would try an overhead kick from 30 yards, it would go miles over the bar and they'd go, Rico, Rico. And we're like, we can't get red around this. <laughs> How's he getting? But so the fans loved him. Yeah. Uh, you know, Reaper did a great. All the, uh, it's hard to go through everyone. I wouldn't want to do that. Gildy came in and did a magnificent job. Gildy was the third choice goalkeeper at uh, at Bradford at the time. Uh, he came in was magnificent. But Gildy was brilliant in the dressing room because Gildy was the, the sponge because he used to get the most stick because he used to do the stupidest things. Daft golly, isn't he? So, you know, Gildy got Gildy got all the stick. He used to just laugh. Reaper and Stubbs used to hammer him in particular. It, during games, during games, you've got no idea how much abuse Reaper and Stubbs used to give Gould. Oh, <laughs> oh, you could hear it from. So what would happen is because Gouldy wouldn't come off his line, right? Because he was a he's a liner. We'd call him. He's he was a great shot stopper, and Celtic fans will remember that. But Gouldy wasn't one for coming off his line. It wasn't his forte, right? So he used to rely. In the main, and Big Stubbsy and Reaper or Tom Boyd heading the ball away. It was a bit like Aberdeen with Jim Layton. Jim wasn't great with crosses. He was a great shot stopper, but he used to rely on Miller and McLeish to head the ball away. Most of the time. And Gildy was like that. We always used to say, you could put the winning lottery ticket on this just over the six-yard line. Gildy still wouldn't come for it. He just wouldn't come out. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
You could you could line the six yard line with gold Rolex watches. He wouldn't come out. It, it, but so, but Reaper and Stubbs didn't like this in particular. So whenever a ball came in the box, one of them would head it out because they were great great defenders. And then we'd be on a counter attack, and we'd be counter attacking right. And I could I could still hear Gildy and Stubbs effing and blinding to Gildy. Uh, sorry, Reaper and Stubbs effing and blinding to Gildy, but not coming off his line. And I'm nearly at the opposition penalty box by this time. And they used to give him it tight. Oh, but he used to laugh because he could take it. He used to just laugh because he knew, you know, and, and that was the camaraderie. You know, it wasn't personal. It was something we did. Uh, you know, Reaper would say, because Reaper was really gruff, right? Reaps, big, big Reaps didn't do subtlety, right? Didn't do it on and off the field. Didn't do subtlety. We get in a... He used to say, I don't know how we won that game with that shite goalkeeper behind us. And Gildy would be sitting next to him. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, he's like, Gildy, when are you going to come off your effing line and all that, you know? It's like, So we... But the boys understood this. Jackie McNamara, Simon Donnelly. i tell you the kind of dressing room it was, Callum. And it was, it was great because we used to go to Celtic Park every day, which I, I loved because... Usually at a football club, you only go to the park, the stadium on match days, which home and away is usually every two weeks, give or take. But because of the training facilities at Barrafield, we trained, we, we changed, we did everything, we had lunch, we trained, we showered, we got treatment at Celtic Park. And I love that because you got a feeling for the park, you got a feeling for the stadium, and you saw the people that worked at the stadium behind the scenes every day. So you got to know the laundry lady, we Angie, who died recently. Lovely lady. We she was proper little glaz. She had all she could you'd go into Angie. I can't repeat some of the things we used to say to her. <laughs> right. But we used to go and see her for a cup of tea and a roll and bacon every morning. Because we'd we'd order then she'd always the kettle on and we'd order bacon rolls down from the from the cafe and we'd hide from Vim because Vim didn't want us eating bacon and egg egg rolls before training, clearly. But we'd do it anyway. So we'd order them for him. So we'd go we'd go and have a cup of tea with Angie in a laundry room. And would tell stories, and you know the stories would be quite graphic and all that kind of nonsense. And and uh, oh, she'd give it back something. She had a wicked tongue, and she'd give it back. But the boys used to go and see her every time. In fact, Tommy Johnson, when she died, he Tommy and all the boys were on the phone arranging stuff for her for for a funeral. And I didn't go because I'm in America here. But I know I think I think a, a, a whack of the boys went, or at least some of them went. Uh, and and that was the kind of rapport we had with people behind the scenes at Celtic because we were there every day. We were talking to these great people behind the scenes that make the, that make the wheels go round of these institutions. It's not the players that make the wheels go round, it's the people behind the scenes. You've got John Clark who won the European Cup, Lisbon Lion, in there doing the kit every day. You go in and see Clarkie every day. Humble, humble guy. You know, great people, and getting that feeling for the club. I, I love that. I thought it was magnificent. And we, we used to have a contest, but you wanted to be in the dressing room first every morning for training because you knew when you came in, if all the boys were there, you were getting abuse. You were getting dogs abuse. You were getting stick. You were getting talked about your gear, and and uh, they were just taking the piss out of you. It was a, 
it was a joy to be around that dressing room. I mean, it really was. It was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, Tommy Tommy Boyd did a great job uh, being the captain. You had people like Peter Latchford there, goalie coach. You had Graham the Masu. He was only a small, tight group of people. There was no sports scientists and all this. You had little Graham doing the massages. You had Brian Scott, who was just funny, 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 funny guy. Great to be around. And Danny McGrain. Danny, Danny McGrain used to be fetching the balls in the training ground. But he was around the club every day. Danny McGrain, you know, what are you doing going and getting the ball? A legend as a player. And all these guys would be around. And it was it was just a great time to be around Celtic Park. In terms of that season, you've played with the likes of Henrik Larsson, who obviously the Celtic icon is such in the modern era. What was he like on the training field? Um, because I know, and this has been spoken about um, a few times, that when he arrived at Celtic, it was a case of integrating himself was maybe tricky at first, but the incident with Tosh McKinley helped that a lot. Yeah, it's a bit of a nasty incident. Tosh is not a nasty guy, but things were kind of bubbling on the surface at the time with one or two players. It was very early in the season, which was a good thing because we, we ironed it out. And there was definitely a little a little bit of angst between the Scandinavian guys and the British guys at the start of the season. It didn't last long. and It didn't last long at all. Maybe it was that incident. But I don't know. I might be wrong. I think when Henry first came in, I, I don't know, it maybe rubbed one or two up the wrong way. And then it was gone. And then it was gone. It just it just dissipated so fast, and there was never ever ever an issue in the dressing room after that. Uh, there was big arguments during and after games, but that was only down to performance. And we would used to, and it was only because we had so many winners and so many experienced players in the dressing room that if somebody wasn't done their job, they were getting told, "Burley, get your finger out, McNamara, whatever, you know, Henrik." Freaking not good enough. You need to run the channel. You need to chase back or whatever it is. Nobody, nobody was beyond finger pointing in that dressing room. And that was one of the things that dragged us through. But it did flare up very, very early. And it just so happened it was before an old film game. And it just so happened that uh, some fans were over watching over the railings at Barrowfield as you could back then and before you knew it it was on Radio Clyde uh, you know but you know that, that's Glasgow that's you're going to have to expect that but it, it it was put to bed very quickly and as I say after that there was never ever ever any issues between the squad apart from footballing issues that I mentioned and that was great and the Scandinavian guys, I say Scandinavian, I don't want to generalise if, if Holland's not in Scandinavia or whatever it is. But guy, the guys from, you know, that part of Europe, terrific. You know, Big Morton, Reeps, Reggie, Henrik, Andy Tom, Benjamin. Andy was lovely, lovely guy. You know, super fast, great inter German international. Uh, you know, don't forget... Once we hit with once we hit with straps and got going that season, we played Liverpool in the UEFA Cup. Everybody had us down to be whacked. 
and we lost an early goal to Michael Owen live on the BBC. Motson was up doing the commentary with David Pleat. A lot of teams would have folded. We came back and we battered them. Now, only, and we should have beat them by three or four, only a Steve McManaman, who's a big friend of mine now because we worked together for years at Satanta, and he, he comes over to the US and works here with ESPN. Uh, only a wonderful goal from McManaman got them a 2-2 draw, uh, and he was a great player. Uh, but that was the only thing that saved them. And that team, that was that was a night where that team just looked at each other and went, freaking hell, we, we, we got this. Not that we were going to win the league or anything, but but we were good enough. We knew we, we knew we could start putting results together, and we did. And that was a big night for us. Apart from the fact Reggie dislocated his uh, his shoulder that night, which was a bad, a real bad injury for him. Uh, the night couldn't have gone much better, apart from the apart from the McManaman and uh, equaliser. Before we talk about the relief of. Stopping the 10 in a row and the, the jubilation. Something that people forget is the League Cup success that season. You scored in the semi-final. You also got a goal in the final and a convincing 3-0 win over Dundee United. What was it like winning that that trophy, especially in the November time as well? Yeah, that was a big one for us because we played Dundee United the week before and we'd give them a... I think we beat them 4-0. Uh, they were a good side under Tommy McLean and Shell Olufsen was a big... Uh, big powerhouse for, for them up front. We kept empty. Uh, for those that rem- you're probably a bit young to remember, Shell Olufsen, he was a big, another Scandinavian. They, they brought a lot in from Scandinavia at that point, the United. And uh, he was a big, strong striker and he always gave us problems. And whenever we played them, we used to say to Andy Ritchie, tell him to sign him. We'll, we'll take him. Can you imagine him coming off the bench and helping Henrik or Simon, you know, We'll take, but anyway, they never signed them because they could have got them for quite cheap. But uh, yeah, it was huge. And the one thing I would say is, you know, Paul Paul Lambert was on the bench that day. You know, if I think about it, Wim left him out, uh, and it was Morton and myself uh, in the middle of the park. Now I, I scored, but uh, we got off to a great start. They they kind of folded a little bit. Uh, Reaper gave us the lead with a great header. Henrik scored with a deflection after the mistake from, I think it was Mark Perry. Uh, one or two scares for Goldie, but nothing major. And then, yeah, we were seeing the game out at 2-0. And then, you know, I got the third, which was offside, but you know, from a Reggie cross. I don't know how it wasn't given offside. It was offside, but uh, I have to say, uh, Morton Vichor's performance that day was uh, magnificent. Now, if, if we are talking an underrated player... You know, when I talk to people about Morton, and he's a lovely guy, lovely, lovely guy, but he was so graceful in the way he just glided across the field. And you didn't realise how quick he was, because he was big and strong, well over six foot. But he had a lovely touch, great great technical ability as well. And he had a great game. He was man of the match. And I was really pleased for him. Really, really pleased for him, because, you know, he's such a nice guy. And he had a terrific... And so everybody... So that was a big, yeah, big moment. Uh... In the end, the game wasn't close, but uh, it just gave, it gave us another excuse to celebrate because that team I can that team liked to do a bit of celebrating as well. You you mentioned the fact you can you can they could do a bit of celebrating and 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 you got to celebrate not only that league cup success but stopping the ten in a row. 
see the 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 game at Dunfermline where it finishes one each. What was mm-hmm. the feeling in the dressing room after that? Because I know, well, from a selfish point of view, I know Simon Donnelly still gutted about it to this day. Yeah, well, I don't know anybody that wasn't gutted in the dressing room or in the stand or at home. If if you were of a Celtic persuasion, I don't know. I didn't want I didn't want it to go to the last day. Why did you want that pressure? You know. I know Tosh McKinley had, has since said on uh, an interview somewhere, Tosh had said, well, it was meant to be, it was meant to be that we were going to win it in front of our own fans at home, but but nobody wanted it. We wanted a party day in the end with the T-shirts and the hats and who gives a toss if we win it or not in the last day. So it was a choker. It was a real choker, particularly after we took the lead when Simon scored. Uh you know, free kick into the box late on. Big Falconbridge on loan from the lower divisions in England comes up and loops a header over Gildy and before you know it, it's nestled in the back of the net and I can remember the shot of Vim and the touchline tried to get us all to squeeze up and get out the box. No, but we never did get out. We dropped too deep and, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. But it's, yeah, that was a, that was a real downer because what it did, it it made for a really difficult week leading up to the last game. And I can tell you, training was a nightmare that week. In fact, training was so bad one day during the week uh, before the last game against St. Johnson. Training was so bad one day. Vim, Vim stopped the training, just stopped it. Said, right, stop, everybody inside, showers, go home. Because players were nearly at fisticuffs. And that was because of the tension. The tension was become so palpable that nerves were fraying. People were starting to lump each other. In fact, if we'd, if we'd kept training like that, we might not have had enough fit bodies for the game at the weekend because players were kicking lumps out of each other. But the tension was starting to come out. And so it just made for a really difficult week, uh, which wasn't nice. But we had to refocus and... By the end of the week, things were starting to get a bit better. And then, obviously, we knew what the job in hand was. But we used to go out during the week for a meal and a few drinks. And we decided that we were going to do the same that week, even though it was such a big game. We decided we weren't going to change what we had did and had done for most of the season. We weren't going to change it, even though it was such a big game. So we kept with our routine. The only thing that changed was training got a bit touchy around the Monday or the Tuesday. Uh, and, and Vim did the right thing, you know, used his experience, said, right, okay, everyone go home, calm down, come back tomorrow, we go, we start again. And <clears throat> that was good man management from his perspective. Interesting and good man management because in terms of times of pressure, you know what it's like being a pundit now, the way the manager reacts to that means that the situation can go one way or the other, but he handled it in the right way. You get over the line, just... You mentioned earlier that towards the end at Celtic, you got a bit tired of the, the politics of it all. From the celebrations and the jubilation of stopping 10 in a row, just how, how disappointed were you in the way that the politics kind of became the, to the forefront as time went on? Yeah, I don't, I've never been a fan. I'm, I'm a straight, straight up sort of straight shooter, so I don't like politics behind the scenes and but I know it goes on. Uh, but it wasn't, it was a little political behind the scenes with Jock and Fergus, but, you know, 
Vim and Murdo just got on with the footballing side, but the disappointment for me was was when Vim left, and 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 I tell you, uh, Celtic were lucky, in a sense, because there was a lot of guys ready to jump ship with the manager, and if Vim had taken a top job somewhere, and I know he was offered a couple, you know, Vim Yancey, he turned down the Everton job, I believe, at that point. Uh, and there was one or two other jobs he turned down because that's what he was like. When he made his mind up to leave Celtic because he didn't, he didn't uh, agree with the hierarchy. That was it. He was leaving no matter what. And when he turned the job down, when he decided it wasn't for him, I think it was Everton. Sheffield went. There was a few. No, not right for me. I'm not taking it. That's what he did. But I can tell you. He would have come. He would. He would have. And I'm not trying to portray him as a bad guy for Celtic fans because he's a hero to Celtic guys. But there's a lot of people in that team he would have wanted to have taken with him. And I don't have to spell it out. Uh, one of the guys was the guy that he brought in. <laughs> now, Larson went on to have a most fantastic relationship and career at Celtic. But he may have jumped ship with him. Vim have taken. We just don't know that. We just don't know because Jansen would have wanted to have taken him. I think he'd have wanted to have taken a few of us. Uh, but he never took that job somewhere. I'm not saying any of us wanted to leave, but we're all the same. When your head gets turned, you start thinking about stuff. And we were a lot of us were disappointed about how it unfolded with with Jansen because we had a good team. We just won the league, stopped ten in a row, won the league and cup double. We were going to go on to bigger and better things. We were going to sign better players. And next year, 1998, after the World Cup, we're going to push on. And we're going to be even better. And we're going to make Celtic better. And we're going to win the league again. And we're going to enjoy it like we enjoyed it. But no, we had the coaching staff was demolished. It left. And then there was a nonsense about bringing Bobby Robson and Gus Hedding. And then we end up with a very nice guy and Dr. Joe Vengloss, who was very experienced, but he was clearly nowhere near on the top of the list to get that job. But but they left it so late, they were running out of ideas. And and by the time the second season started, we hadn't signed anybody. And the best time to sign players is not when you're struggling. It's when you're on top of your game. And we didn't do it. And we, we sat and rested on our laurels and all the, a lot of the guys had been at the World Cup and we started to see injuries happening and the squad wasn't good enough. It was about, you can look back that season, but seven or eight guys had been to the World Cup with different countries and every one of them started picking up injuries, myself included. I mean, I started the season like a house on fire, scored the hat-trick and the, opened the game against Dunfermline. And then things just started to slow down and then... You know, you, you need a you need a rest, and we didn't get much of a rest after the World Cup. And if you don't get much of a rest, then you need a bigger squad so that you can rotate. And we didn't sign anybody, so uh, that was disappointing. And the politics came around at the end because what happened was was Fergus. Uh, now I might have the time frame wrong here, but uh, Fergus was selling the club, or whatever happened. The chief executive changed. Uh, Alan, whatever his name, came in. The whole hierarchy changed. Kenny Douglas came in, who is like a director of football. Uh, Barnsley came in, 
and all these different people. And I'll be frank with you, and I'm not going to start slagging people off, but nobody know, not the right arm didn't know what the left arm was doing. I don't think I was their favourite anyway. But they knew they could get money from me. And so they knew Jim Smith was interested, and they were going to raise three million, which is 500 grand more than what they paid for me. So it wasn't bad money. And that meant they only put... And that meant they only had to put two and a half million to maybe the worst Brazilian that ever touched touched their boots down in, in, in European soccer. But that's what they wanted to do. And they got, their, they got what they wanted because, <clears throat> excuse me, I made that move to Derby. Because I wanted to go and work, as I say, and it goes back to working with somebody who's a good man manager and doesn't play politics. And that's why I wanted to go and work. And there was other teams I could have went to in England. And, and I could have went to Hearts because Jim Jeffries. And I, Jim Jeffries was desperate for me to go to Hearts. Uh, I love Jim. Great guy. He's got so much... I mean, when Jim Jeffries on the touchline, the one word that comes to mind is passion. He's a, such a passionate guy. But I always scored against his teams. He freaking hated me. And uh, <laughs> But you know Jim, Jim Jeffries, and this is how much has changed. Jim Jeffries was willing to match what... what Derby County were going to pay me. That's that's where Hearts were at the time. Now, could they afford to pay it? That's not my. I don't. That's not my problem. Whether that's they've got the finances to do it. I'm just saying, he offered me Premier League money to stay, but my mind was made up. I was going to England. But I thank JJ for it. Now I love the guy. Great guy. And Hearts is a great club. I love playing at Tyne Castle. Great and a great atmosphere. When I when I when I go went back there as a broadcaster many times with Derek, I used to get so much stick, but it's part and parcel because you're right in amongst the fans. But the whole Celtic thing came about because they wanted to raise money. I wasn't their favourite. Uh, blah blah blah. So I played a bit of hardball with them for a couple of weeks until I got the deal that I wanted, and uh, that was pissing Kenny off big time because. So well, I'm, I've agreed terms with Derby, but you know I'm looking for this, and I won't go into it. But I played a bit of hardball um, before I left, and uh, I'll let you into it. Fans are great to me, not now, <laughs> not now. I get pelters now, which is, I, I, I get all that. I don't mind. Fans were great to me when I was playing, absolutely fantastic. Loved the club, massive club. Loved playing at Celtic Park. Loved my teammates. Apart from one or two that signed later on, like Ioberkovic, I had not much time for him because he was selfish. Uh, but loved everybody there. Bit of a tear in my eye when I left, bit like I had when I left Chelsea because I'd been there 10 years. I never thought I was going to leave. It's hard to leave guys you've worked with for 10 years and people you've worked with for 10 years. It's not easy. People think it is. It is for some. And I know I sound like a callous bastard sometimes when I'm on TV, but you know, it's like, you know, it's personal and I don't want to leave my teammates and people behind the scenes uh, the truth of it is some people at the club wanted me out some people at the club wanted to raise money and some people at the club wanted to sign Raphael Scheid and that's how it all came about <laughs> and there's nothing to hide there's no there's no there's no story in there people think there's, there's no story apart from that this is and I haven't got a problem with that and people say to me Oh, are you bitter for late? As I always say, why am I bitter? Why would I be bitter to a football club? Football clubs don't sell you. 
People sell you. People, human beings make decisions, not football clubs. And human beings within football clubs change, right? And so, Rude Hullet's not playing me at Chelsea and then selling me. It's got nothing to do with Chelsea Football Club. It's just the personnel that were there at the time. That's the decision they made. The people that Celtic made the decisions they made at that time. It's nothing to do with Celtic. Celtic football clubs in Chelsea, they're great clubs. They have great people working behind them, albeit a lot of them may have changed now. But it's people that make decisions, and the people that were in good positions at that time made poor decisions all round. That's why that regime, from top to bottom, did not last very long. That's why the performances on the field were not very good. That's why Inverness, Caledonia and Thistle beat them at home and they were fighting in the dressing room. I wasn't there because I'd left at that point. I was already at Derby. But I know it was such a shambles it was kicking off. It comes down to politics and management. And I wanted no more. I wanted, I wanted out of that. And as disappointed as I was to leave, it, it, it happened. And, and it's as simple as that, Callum. That's, that's, and I went to Derby. And Darby was so we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave